the Bible reading today is from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 33. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what God has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they receive their contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy, by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, if your aim was to take the gospel of Jesus to the world, what would you do? What would your strategy be? Uh, hit me up in the comments. This is one of the advantages of not being live, is that uh, I can actually be on the computer and answer your comments as they come up. But what would you do? Would you set up a Patreon account? Would you build an app? Would you start a radio station? Would you move to a big city? Would you move to a country town? Would you go alone? Would you take a team with you? Would you give away free iPads to everyone who gets baptised? What about free coffee at church? Would you stay in Perth? Would you move to New York? or? Maybe not New York at the moment, or maybe not London, or maybe this is a great opportunity with the coronavirus. What would you do to take the gospel to the world?
Alright, well when you stop and think about it, there's really an infinite number of options, aren't there? Today we're going to be looking at the second half of Romans 15, and at one level this is just Paul explaining why he's written to the Christians in Rome. But at another level, it's actually Paul showing how his own thinking has been transformed by the Gospel of Jesus. How he's been transformed by the renewing of his mind to think about how he can best grow the Gospel of Jesus. Now, lots of Paul's letters are written to churches that have gone off the rails. The Galatians attempted to fall back into Jewish law-keeping. The Corinthians have all sorts of problems that are associated with arrogance and pride. The Thessalonians seem to have been unsettled by claims about the end times and the return of Jesus. But the Christians in Rome, as you read through the letter, don't seem to have a major problem. Yeah, there may be some tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians hinted at throughout, but there's nothing major that Paul really tackles. Now, Romans just unfolds more or less according to the internal logic of the gospel, rather than some big problem that they're facing. In fact, in verse 14, Paul goes so far as to say, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Now, that is a pretty striking thing to say especially for a guy who, back in chapter 3, wrote, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. But now he's saying that the Roman Christians are full of goodness that they do understand, that they are competent to instruct one another. Is this just Paul buttering up the Romans? I don't think so. He doesn't seem like the buttering up kind of guy. No, I think this is Paul expressing his genuine belief that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And that he's seeing that lived out in the lives of the Romans. I wonder how many of us have so absorbed the doctrine of sin that we've failed to believe the message that the gospel, applied by the Holy Spirit, brings about real change. Yes, Christians still sin. Look, I'm living proof of that. But by God's grace, we have actually been changed from people who were opposed to God to people who are living for him. We've been changed from evil to good. See, in our first year small groups, we use the illustration of watching a man on a ship through a telescope. And you see him scrubbing the decks and polishing the brass, helping his crewmates, basically being the ideal sailor. But then as you draw back on the telescope, you see that the ship he's sailing in flies a skull and crossbones. And you realise that he's on a pirate ship. He's a pirate. And your whole perspective on him changes. At first glance, he seemed like a good guy, but you realise now he's actually on the wrong side. It's a great illustration of sin. Because sin is fundamentally about whose side you're on. Are you a loyal subject of King Jesus? Or are you a rebel? But I wonder if sometimes we forget that when we put our trust in Jesus, we've actually changed sides. We've left the pirate ship. We've thrown ourselves on the king's mercy. And we've started sailing on his ship as his loyal servant. That doesn't mean that we're flawless. That doesn't mean that we don't sometimes grumble about the king. But we really have changed. We're no longer evil, we're good. 
not good apart from Christ, as though you could just cut us off from him, like we could jump overboard from his ship and swim away and I'd still be a wonderful person. But actually good because of what God has done. I think sometimes we believe that in Christ we're filthy, but kind of hidden behind him, so that as long as you don't stick your head out so God can see how disgusting you are, he'll just see Jesus and so you'll be safe. But that's actually a long way from how the Bible describes Christians. The Bible describes Christians as washed, justified, sanctified, purified from sin, clothed in white, holy and pleasing to God. It's not that God delights in Christ, but frankly, you're a bit of a disappointment. No, because of Christ, God delights in you. And Paul delights in the Romans. But if they're full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another, why did he bother writing to them in the first place? Well, he tells us in verse 15, I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Have the Romans forgotten the gospel? If you said to them, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Roman Christian, what is this gospel thing I hear people talking about? Would they say, oh, yeah, I'm not 100% sure, actually. I, I've kind of forgotten it. No, of course not. He's just said that they're filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. They know the gospel. I know the gospel. You probably know it too. We haven't forgotten that Jesus died to pay for our rebellion against God that he was raised to life as God's king. We don't walk out of church on Sunday or public meeting on a Tuesday or Thursday and think, now, what was that gospel thing they were talking about? No, we remember the gospel. We understand it, but we forget to apply it to our lives. We slip back into our old ways of thinking. So if you ask me, does God love you? I'd say, of course he does. He sent his son to die for me. He must love me. And yet I think and act as if he doesn't. The gospel is kind of like food. It's not enough to be aware of what food is. You actually need to eat the stuff. And just like we sometimes get so caught up in our busyness that we forget to eat, we rush out the door without breakfast, or we realise about four o'clock that we actually forgot to eat lunch. So we find it easy to know what the gospel is and yet forget to take it in and absorb it. I know I'm justified by God's grace apart from my works, but very often I catch myself thinking and acting as though I've got to prove myself to others. I know that I have the Holy Spirit within me and that I'm actually capable of resisting sin, but I find myself caving into it, forgetting that sin is no longer my master. I know that Christ has saved me to one, be one body with all these other people who trust in him. But all too easily I forget and I start thinking in terms of my own rights instead of what's best for others. Yes, I know the gospel, but like the Romans, I still need to be reminded of it. By Paul and by the other authors of the Bible as I read it. By preachers and teachers as they point me to it. By my friends and family as they mention it in day-to-day -day conversation. Paul writes to remind them. But still, why does he take it on himself to write to them? Well, he goes on to tell us in the following verses. Paul writes to the Romans because of his priestly, powerful and pioneering ministry. Have a look at verse 15 again. 
I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When the resurrected Jesus confronted Paul on the Damascus road, he told him, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Paul rightly sees that as a priestly ministry. Now, some denominations, including the one I belong to, have gotten into the very unhelpful habit of calling their pastors priests. Now, I say it's unhelpful, firstly, because it creates the impression that whoever is up the front giving the sermon and leading communion is a special person who brings us into fellowship with God. But that's not true. <laughs> it's Christ who brings us into fellowship with God, not the guy up the front of the church. And secondly, it's unhelpful because it undermines the fact that we're all priests in the sense that we, God's people, do bring others into fellowship with God by proclaiming the gospel to them. That's what Paul is talking about here. He has a special priestly duty. Jesus has specifically commissioned him to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, that they might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is like a priest lifting the sacrifice onto the altar, where it will be consumed in the flames as an offering to God. Although here, of course, it's all kind of reversed, because this offering was dead, and actually, in being offered to God, is made alive. The Gentiles were destined to be consumed in the flames, but now they've been saved from the flames, and the Lord, their shepherd, leads them beside streams of living water, restoring their souls. That's the specific task that Paul was specially commissioned for. It's a priestly ministry. But actually, this priestly ministry of the gospel, of reconciling people to God, is one that all Christians are called to. The Apostle Peter says in his first letter that we're a royal priesthood, that we might declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness and into his glorious light. Declaring God's praises is not about my private moment with God at church while the band makes a key change. It's about me telling others how great God is, so that they too might put their trust in Jesus, that they would be encouraged to offer their lives to him as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So Paul writes to the Romans because it fits with his priestly ministry to the Gentiles. He wants to proclaim the gospel to the Romans to help present them as an offering acceptable to God. This is his priestly ministry. And secondly, he writes to them because his ministry is powerful. See it there in verses 17 to 19. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Paul's ministry is powerful. True, the power is not his own. It's actually Christ's power working through him, which is why Paul won't speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through him. 
But Christ has accomplished some really powerful stuff through Paul. Not just signs and wonders, although Paul does mention elsewhere that they are the authentic signs of an apostle. What he particularly means is that through what Paul has said and done in proclaiming the gospel, Christ has led many Gentiles to obey God. From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, that's modern-day Albania. And so Paul would love to preach the gospel in Rome too. He'd love to see more Romans come to know and trust in Jesus. So if Paul has this priestly and powerful ministry to the Gentiles, why has he never preached the gospel in Rome? I mean, Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. It's the largest city in it. It's got over a million people who need to hear the gospel. Why hasn't Paul gone there already? It seems the obvious thing to do. Well, says Paul, it's because of this third P. See, as well as being priestly and powerful, Paul's ministry is pioneering. See it there in verses 20. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul hasn't been to Rome because someone has already brought the gospel to it. We don't know who that was. Quite possibly it was Jews from Rome who travelled to Jerusalem for Pentecost decades earlier, who were there when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter stood up and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus to all those who were there. They've gone back to Rome, perhaps, and proclaimed the gospel there. We don't really know. But however it happened, the gospel has already reached Rome. And Paul's ambition was to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. But why? Is it because it's wrong to preach Christ where he's already known? No, actually, that's a very good thing to do. We need people to do that. Is it because Paul is too proud to build on someone else's foundation? That he wants it to be all about him? No, of course not. But Paul does see that there is a gospel imperative to take the message of Jesus to those who have not yet heard. He quotes Isaiah 49 verse 6. Those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Gospel means big news, and big news is meant to be told to those who have not heard it. If the gospel fulfills God's promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him, then all nations need to hear it. If the gospel is that Jesus is Lord of all, then all need to hear of the Lord Jesus. We can't be content with keeping the gospel to ourselves. That would go against the gospel itself. Now, it's not that every Christian has to become an overseas missionary, but every Christian must want to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And some of us need to be the ones who will actually do it. And Paul is one of those guys. He's been specially commissioned by Jesus to this priestly, powerful and pioneering ministry of the gospel. The first two are why he's written Romans. But the third is why he hasn't visited them. But the third is also why he plans to visit them now. See, Rome is the centre of the world, but... Paul wants to go there not because he's one of those country kids who dreams of making it big in New York. No, Paul's ambition isn't to go to the centre of the world, but to the ends of the earth. He wants to go to Spain. Now, back then, Spain and Portugal weren't tourist destinations. It's not that Paul has heard that the Costa del Sol is nice this time of year and he could do with a few cocktails. 
No, Spain was a backwater in the Roman Empire. It was as far west as you could go before encountering those disgusting barbarians, the English. But if Jesus is Lord of all, then even the Spanish need to hear the gospel. Even the English do. And that's why Paul plans to visit Rome, so he can stock up on his supplies for his missionary journey to Spain. Now, it may be that you're not in a position to do that. I know some of you have parents or siblings who will need your care. Some of you have illnesses that will prevent you from ever doing anything like that. Some of you just lack the gifts to do it. And if that's you, that's totally okay. Paul is not rebuking the Romans for not going to Spain. But he does think they ought to assist him in the ministry of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. In the rest of Romans, Paul has another three P's. This time about how others assist him in the ministry of the gospel. Payment, prayer, and people. We'll look at the first two today and the third one, people, next week. See, in verse 25, he tells the Romans that before he visits them, he's going to take a collection of money back to the church in Jerusalem. Now, I suspect Paul's not just informing them here of his plans. He's actually wanting the Romans to see how others are using their money for the promotion of the gospel. Have a look at verses 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. The Macedonian collection is not about providing money for evangelism. It's actually about providing for the Jerusalem church, which is materially less well off than many of the Gentile churches. But it's more than just poverty relief. It's actually Paul's way of trying to keep the Jewish and Gentile Christians united in the gospel. See, it would be easy for the Jewish Christians to feel like the Gentiles are the hot new thing and Paul doesn't really care about them. And it would be easy for the Gentile Christians to feel like God has basically finished with the Jews and moved on to them. But God's promises to Abraham are not about God moving on from the Jews to the Gentiles. They're about blessing all nations through the Jews. Israel isn't uprooted and thrown away. No, the Gentiles are grafted into Israel. And that's why this collection is so important to Paul, because it will show the Jewish Christians, the church in Jerusalem, that the Gentile Christians realise all that, that they realise they are getting to share in Israel's spiritual blessings, and so want to help them with their material blessings. And that will strengthen the gospel unity of the church. But as the Romans read of the Macedonians' generosity for the sake of the gospel, they ought to be moved to use their money to promote the gospel. They ought to be moved to pay Paul to assist him. And secondly, he tells them that they can assist him through prayer. I urge you, brothers and sisters, verse 30, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. 
Paul doesn't see prayer as something irrelevant or something that sort of, it changes me, but it has no impact on the outside world. No, he believes that prayer is essential, that in prayer we call upon the Lord of the universe to fulfil his plans. And in fact, everything that Paul asks them to ask God for here actually happens, although not in a way that any of them would have anticipated. He was kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. Falsely accused of taking a Gentile into the temple, he was taken into protective custody by a squad of Roman soldiers to keep him safe from the unbelieving Jews. Fearing that he would be handed over to the Jewish leaders and killed, he used his right as a Roman citizen to have his case heard by Caesar. And so he got taken as a prisoner to Rome, all expenses paid by Caesar. We don't know if Paul ever reached Spain, but we do know that Clement, an elder in Rome, writing about 30 years after Paul wrote Romans, says that Paul reached the farthest limits of the West, so maybe he did manage to get to Spain. What we can know is that God answered the Romans' prayers for Paul, albeit in an unexpected way. Payment and prayer. They're critical ways that those of us who can't take the gospel to unreached people uh, certainly unreached people overseas. It's a way that we can help those who can. Whether we go or whether we stay, surely our ambition has got to be the same as Paul's, to see all people come under the Lordship of Jesus. So what about you? The leadership guru, uh, Jim Collins, talks about BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. Eric's there what successful what set successful entrepreneurs apart from the rest? Big, hairy, audacious goals. I reckon Paul had BHAGs. He could have easily justified staying in Jerusalem or Antioch, faithfully preaching the gospel to there, and certainly there need to be people who do that. But Paul had a gospel BHAG, or a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious gospel goal to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Do you have a BHAGAGA, a big, hairy, audacious gospel goal? Yeah, you could spend the rest of your life living in the comfort of Perth, proclaiming the gospel here. We do need people to do that. I'm one of them. But for all its spiritual poverty, Perth is pretty well reached, isn't it? Compared to many other parts of the world. Can we really be content to go to Bali for cheap holidays, but not be willing to go to Indonesia to preach the gospel? Can we really be content to buy consumer goods from China and India and Bangladesh, but never bother to take them the gospel? What BHAG could you have? Well, whatever it is, and dream about it, think about it, and set your direction now. See, Australian culture is like a river that flows to the sea. You don't have to do anything to be carried along by the current. Go to uni, get a job, buy a house, marry, settle down, uh, have some kids, do your job, work, retire, move to Mandurah, spend the rest of your life drinking flat whites from Dome. If you do nothing else, that is where the current of Australian culture will take you. But you need to be deliberate in swimming against that. You need to decide to use the opportunities that God has given you to take the gospel where it isn't known. See, what if instead of just getting a degree and getting a comfortable job here, you got a degree and moved to the Middle East to preach the gospel there? 
you used the skills and jobs that you've got um, to be able to do that. What could you do? What could be your gospel strategy? What behagger could you have? What big, hairy, audacious gospel goal could you have to take the gospel to the ends of the earth?